Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. We are once again coming to you from Charleston, South Carolina, just two days until the Palmetto State weighs in on this very fascinating Democratic nomination race. In a few minutes, I'm going to be talking with my colleague, Zach Wolf. He's a senior writer here at CNN. But first, I want to check in with our Bernie Sanders campaign correspondent, Washington correspondent Ryan Nobles is on the road as he's making his way to Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, to meet up with Sanders, who holds an event there this evening. Uh, Ryan, why is Bernie Sanders currently not in the state of South Carolina? (laughs) Great question, David. Uh, I think it's because they are already looking past South Carolina. You know, from the very beginning, this was never a state that they had etched into the win column. Uh, They always hoped to do better here than he did uh, against Hillary Clinton back in 2016, which really isn't all that difficult because he was trounced here four years ago. Uh, And because Super Tuesday comes so closely after the South Carolina primary, he's really focused a lot of his effort on those Super Tuesday states because they are going to be so important uh, to his ultimate goal of winning the Democratic nomination. What's interesting, David, is... uh, uh, they really changed their strategy a little bit. He was really not spending any time in South Carolina up until Saturday. And now what we see him doing is spending part of the day in either Virginia or North Carolina. He's even going to Massachusetts, which is a little suspicious, uh, but then ending or at least spending at least part of the day in South Carolina. So they haven't given up completely on the Palmetto State yet, but it's clear that they feel the bigger prizes for Sanders uh, lie ahead on uh, March 3rd, not necessarily on Saturday. Now, as you know, obviously, uh, he's been on a roll, Bernie Sanders, and uh, emerged with that popular vote victory, uh, a near tie in Iowa, uh, that slim victory in New Hampshire, and the resounding victory in Nevada, where he showed the ability to sort of broaden his coalition of support a bit. But you noted the trouble he had here in South Carolina against Hillary Clinton in 2016, and he may suffer his biggest defeat here. I mean, if Joe Biden's confidence uh, is any way to read what actually may happen here on Saturday, I have no idea. But Joe Biden and his campaign seem really uh, of the mind that they're going to have quite a successful night here on Saturday, which means Bernie Sanders may be suffering his actual first biggest defeat uh, of the cycle. I take your point that they're focused on Super Tuesday, but are they saying anything about how they think if Biden wins here, how that may alter the the overall sort of trajectory of the race? Uh, so, David, I, I think you're right about that. And, and I think it's a good question because there I, I think their goal right now is essentially to try and narrow the gap here as much as possible. Uh, you know, there was a spate of polls last week that showed that perhaps Sanders was within the margin of error. But then the latest round of polls, a Monmouth poll yesterday, uh, shows that uh, Biden has taken a pretty commanding lead. And I do think so much of the narrative about Biden's future is going to really depend on the margin of victory for him here. If Sanders is able to keep it w- within four or five points, uh, then maybe they can write this off as not being that important and that Super Tuesday is a lot more important. But if Biden takes a big, huge lead, a 10-point lead, 
uh, even something more than that. I think that that plays into the Biden argument that African-American voters in particular are on his side. And, David, you know this better than anyone. You know, I talked to Marsha Fudge, who's the uh, former uh, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She's from Ohio. But, you know, a lot of black leaders and a lot of black voters around the country really take their cues from what happens here in South Carolina because they know that this is the first state where they have a real powerful say in the presidential primary process. So I do think there's some concern in Sanders' world that if he takes a big beating here, that that could maybe dent the progress he's made with minority voters. So that's why I think you see them, you know, they expanded their ad buy here. That's why you see him spending so much time here in the closing days of the campaign, because I don't think they think they can win, but they do want that margin to be as tight as possible. Yeah. And I just can't stress enough uh, to our listeners, Ryan, like when we talk about the importance of the black vote in the Democratic uh, nominating process, it's not just uh, African-Americans are the most loyal Democratic voters and and the heart and base of the party. And so that is important. And it is. It is actually a math matter of why it's so important, because, uh, as you know, the way that these delegates are apportioned uh, isn't just statewide. It's also by congressional district and the congressional districts with the biggest Democratic performance get more delegates to award the candidates. Those are uh, primarily African-American concentrated districts. So there is a there is a real delegate math uh, importance to the African-American vote, which is why not only you're saying how crucial it is uh, for the Sanders team to really invest and play and not write it off in any way and show substantial growth among African-Americans. But it's also why Joe Biden uh, looks at the Super Tuesday landscape and says if he can catapult out of South Carolina with a substantial victory, then places like uh, an Arkansas, an Alabama, Tennessee, which has significant African-American uh, Democratic electorate, that he may have a chance on Super Tuesday to blunt some of that Sanders momentum. Uh, that's so true. And, and, and David, I would take it even a step further because, you know, the biggest uh, kind of Achilles heel for the Sanders campaign has been their electability argument. And I mean, you just look back at the president of the Democrats that have won the White House. They've always won a general election by enjoying strong, enthusiastic support from African-American voters. And if you can't show that you have that base of support going into a general election, uh, much less the primary, uh, it's a very hard case to make that you can win in November. So I think that Sanders needs this not only from the pure delegate math uh, of winning the Democratic primary, but he also needs to signal to Democratic voters that he has black voters on his side because he's going to need them when he takes on Donald Trump in the fall. Such a good point. Right before I let you go, I just want to get your take. You noted he's going to Massachusetts. He's also going to Minnesota. I mean, this is not by accident that on the eve of Super Tuesday, uh, he's making sure to hit a couple of home states uh, for his competitors, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. What does the campaign say about what they're trying to do there? Well, the first thing is they think they can win both states, which I think is really important. You know, I I don't think that many of the other campaigns have spent any time or resources at all in places like Massachusetts in particular. So the fact that they're devoting resources and then the candidates precious time, which is far and away the most important resource they have at their disposal to going to both of these states on the eve of Super Tuesday, I think tells you everything about how they want to take control of this Democratic primary. I haven't had one Sanders aide tell me that they think they can wrap the whole thing up on Tuesday. Tuesday night, but they certainly would like to be in a position where it's going to be very difficult for anyone to break into their lead after Super Tuesday. And you pick up wins in Minnesota and Massachusetts, much less if you add California, Texas, Virginia, maybe Colorado to that mix. Well, then that's a whole different story. And I think that's why you see them making those last minute stops in those two key states ahead of the vote on Tuesday. 
Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. I know how busy you are on the campaign trail. Really appreciate you taking some time on your trip there to Spartanburg uh, to chat with us. Thank you. All right. Always a pleasure. Thanks, David. We're now going to pivot to Zach Wolf, my colleague who's in Washington, D.C. Zach, we just heard Ryan walk us through the Sanders approach to South Carolina, Super Tuesday and beyond. Uh, can I get your sense, uh, a more macro sense uh, of your observation of where we are in this race? Does Joe Biden have the ability to mount a comeback if he has a big win here in South Carolina? I think part of the question is Joe Biden or anybody at this point, because what we've seen so far is that Sanders, even if he doesn't win a, a contest, he gets some some delegates out of it. He gets, uh, you know, some help out of all of these contests. So even if he doesn't win in South Carolina, he has a good showing that sort of 30 percent kernel that, you know, base that he has within the Democratic Party it's it's almost we're getting to the point where nobody can can catch him in a in a delegate total. And even if Joe Biden comes back and somehow, you know, before Super Tuesday and that's a big question mark, is everybody suddenly going to flock to Joe Biden? Are they all going to leave Elizabeth Warren and Mike Bloomberg and all these other people? It, it, it's almost like, you know, you have to view it. It's so fractured. I'm not sure we can look at it as one single person being able to defeat Sanders at this point. Yeah, I, I was um, I was just at a Joe Biden event right before I came to record the podcast and uh, just getting a sense from some of his campaign team. I mean, they they clearly feel so confident about a strong showing here Saturday in, in South Carolina. It's the what after that, that that nobody really knows in the sense of can they parlay that a strong showing with the African-American voters here into a strong showing in enough Super Tuesday states with big chunks of African-American vote where they can make a sort of delegate impact that it, it slows the sort of runaway momentum that that Sanders seems to have. And I just don't think, you know, we're going to know that until we get to Wednesday morning and and, and see how Super Tuesday uh, really shook out. I, one of the things, and you just pointed to this, is this notion of the consolidation in the non among the non-Sanders candidates. And I have no doubt in chatting with some of the Biden folks, they're eager to see if this field narrows quickly after Tuesday night. Are we dealing with fewer candidates on Wednesday morning, and Elizabeth Warren at our town hall last night, Zach, made it clear she's not going anywhere. And she was pressed by a voter as sort of a follow up to the debate in Las Vegas last week about this notion of whether or not you're going to go to the convention and battle it out, even if uh, an opponent, i.e. Bernie Sanders, has a clear plurality of the delegates. Listen to this exchange Elizabeth Warren had with this voter. During the Nevada debate, you and every other candidate on the stage, except for Bernie, hello somebody, indicated that the candidate with the plurality of delegates should not necessarily be the nominee. Uh-huh. This essentially means the will of the voters could be denied by the superdelegates and the DNC, which is basically undemocratic. And in my opinion, is a bunch of baba booey, to put it politely. Can you explain why the will of the voters should not matter if no candidate reaches a majority of delegates? So you do know that was Bernie's position in 2016? Not necessarily, no. Yeah. (laughs) He won won 22 states, so so he went to the convention for No, that was Bernie's position in 2016, that it should not go to the person who had a plurality. So, and remember, his last 
his last play was to the superdelegates. So the way I see this is you write the rules before you know where everybody stands, and then you stick with those rules. So for me, Bernie had a big hand in writing these rules. I didn't write them, uh, but Bernie did. When uh, we were putting together, they were putting together the 2016 platform for the Democratic Convention. Those are the rules that he wanted to write and others wanted to write. Everybody got in the race thinking that was the set of rules. I don't see how come you get to change it just because he now thinks there's an advantage to him for doing that. What'd you make of that when you heard Elizabeth Warren uh, make the case there? Uh, (laughs) That was pretty interesting, especially uh, since it was the first time she sort of acknowledged that her competition is Bernie Sanders. She's been so intent on targeting Mike Bloomberg, um, you know, that, that she sort of let Bernie slide, I felt like, at the debates. But that is a real, uh, real uh, flair, I think, in that sound that she does realize that Bernie uh, Sanders has the most delegates. He's likely to have the most delegates heading into the convention and that ultimately he is her competition. It is a little rich. However, I, I don't care what the rules say. I mean, we should always know what the rules are and all of that. At some point, Democrats are going to have to turn and, you know, they are going to have to come together. And the idea that you could go into the convention and have the person with the most delegates not emerge from the convention as the nominee is going to make it very hard for that person who had a plurality of the vote to uh, have their supporters, you know, go for somebody else. It's not the most unifying message. It might be the letter of the the rules, but it's not probably going to excite uh, those people who are excited going into the convention. Zach, uh, Michael Bloomberg made his town hall debut uh, with us last night on CNN. It actually seemed a much better format for him than the two debates he's participated in uh, were. uh, But uh, he was pressed by a voter about his party switching history. We like these town hall formats. It gives you a chance to. uh, So you rejoined the Democratic Party in 2018 after leaving the party for nearly 20 years. To the folks out there who look at you askance and say, why should Democratic voters trust you to lead their party? What do you say? Well, look, uh, I come from Massachusetts where there are no Republicans. So I was a Democrat there for sure. (laughs) I moved to New York City where there are no Republicans. So I was a Democrat there. Uh, It is true. I ran as a Republican twice and independent once because the Democratic Party wouldn't let me go out and get on the ballot. And um, I was an outsider. And okay, that's the way it is. Uh, But if you want to know my Democratic credentials, uh, I spoke for Hillary Clinton at the DNC convention in Philadelphia in 2016. Uh, I certainly supported Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden. He says no, but I was there both times for them. Thank you very much. Uh, I campaigned among the Conference of Mayors for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, I've spent a lot of time working on Democratic causes, one of which was electing 21 or helping to elect 21 Congress people who were good on guns, good on uh, climate. Those are my two issues. And we helped 21 get elected this time. That swung the House from red to blue, put Nancy Pelosi in charge. 
and gave her the ability to start the impeachment process, because I think that the Congress's job is to oversee the executive branch. You need that check and balance. But in a normal year, I give away all my company profits, which is $800 million, and to causes that you would think all Democrats are basically all liberal Democratic policies. Zach, do you do you think this line of attack has traction? We've seen it from Buttigieg, uh, who raises the notion that he's not a real Democrat. We've seen it from Biden. Do do you think Democratic voters uh, care whether or not Michael Bloomberg was once a Republican if he is now a Democrat and funding, you know, major issue priorities like climate change and gun control? No, I really don't. And we tend to overstate this, I think. But let's not forget that the front runner in this primary is also not a Democrat or at least not a member of the party. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and but it's true. And and Bloomberg used to be a Republican. He is doing things with his money that almost every Democrat like. Um, so while he doesn't have this long line of working for the party, um, I, I think that you could say the same of Bernie Sanders in a lot of way, although Bernie Sanders has a much uh, more authentic claim to progressivism and liberalism. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, the, the, the voters that he is most appealing to probably don't care too much that he hasn't had a big D next to his name for, for all that long. Zach, I want to turn our attention back to the city you're in, Washington, uh, off the campaign trail. Uh, you know, Donald Trump went to the White House briefing room yesterday with administration uh, health officials from his administration uh, to talk about coronavirus preparedness and to name Mike Pence as his sort of coronavirus czar uh, who's going to run point on this for the administration. Uh, clearly, it was done after the markets closed yesterday in an attempt to try to, I think, quell uh, the Wall Street concern over global economic impact because of this. I'm not sure where the market will end up today, obviously, but it didn't look so good uh, throughout the day thus far. Uh, so I'm not sure that succeeded in quelling concerns. I guess my question is, do you believe coronavirus can actually be an issue uh, on which Donald Trump's reelection chances uh, stand? It certainly felt yesterday like Donald Trump thought it might. You'd never see him go to the briefing room and hold that sort of, um, you know, ki- kind of in-, in the midst of this, I'm dealing with this kind of, uh, you-, you know, moment. He, 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 he does hurricane stuff. Uh, from the Oval Office uh, with these kind of static pictures. This was him trying to look in control of this thing and to and to to to, to calm everyone, even though he was at the same time, if you listen to what he said, he was sort of contradicting the public health professionals who were standing around him in real time. Um, and then he appointed Mike Pence and it looked like his his HHS secretary was a little bit surprised about that. Like he like what? Um, it, I, I didn't I thought I was in charge of this thing. So there there are these kind of, you know, concerning elements where it, it feels when you look at Donald Trump talk about this, like he's concerned about coronavirus because it's going to affect him, whereas I think a lot of people are want him to be concerned that coronavirus could infect a lot of people and, and kill some of them. And I'm not sure that that was portrayed in his moment of leadership yesterday. And there is real economic concern. I mean, we saw this 
uh, memo from Goldman Sachs to investors today. Uh, and obviously, the economy uh, is the number one strength uh, Donald Trump has uh, going into his reelection effort. And so, um, I, yes, national security and the health of Americans and our global uh, society is uh, paramount, obviously, and it should be. I take your point about that. But it's, it, it does seem that if the economy falters, I mean, Donald Trump is keenly aware that that could be real big trouble for him. Yeah. And he is building his entire campaign around this idea that he has he has made the economy better. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments, uh, you know, for and against. Yes, the market's going up, but it's not helping all people and and all of that. If the market goes down, um, I think that he loses his main line of argument for Re-election, and that is a concerning thing to him. You're, and you're right, above and beyond the public health nightmare that could uh, lead to it. And you know, the other thing I think that we we'll just have to watch, and I don't think we'll know this yet for a little bit. This is just going to be an incredibly big competency test for the Trump administration. This is one of those things. Uh, you know, presidents get tested at the stuff that gets thrown at them in an unexpected manner and how they handle it. And this is one of those big presidential tests. That's right. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about Chris Christie during the hurricanes and how that affected him. You think about mayors of small towns and big cities when a snowstorm hits. The the true element of leadership for a politician is how they deal with the things that nobody is expecting. And absolutely nobody was expecting a flu pandemic or a coronavirus pandemic to to kind of sweep the world. Um, and if you look at the maps, it is truly sweeping the world. And this is this is a remarkable thing. And, you know, add to that, Donald Trump has spent the last three years kind of undermining Americans or trying to undermine Americans' faith in institutions. And this is the moment when people really need to trust their institutions. So he is going to, uh, you know, live or die in this thing on the remaining trust that hasn't been eroded in how people have faith in their government. Such a good point. And now mission is on him to fill that credibility gap that he helped create. Uh, Zach Wolf, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And a special thanks to our audience as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about the podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 